We have come to the last message out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. I'm going to read the entire section again, beginning in verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 22. It says this, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The end of 1 Thessalonians has some very memorable verses there. Paul is moving into some closing exhortations to the church, and he's given them some practical advice, primarily focused on the kind of relationships they've probably already got, but it's the kind of relationships that should characterize a healthy church. We are working our way very slowly through each of these phrases. I think that's good for us, not so much trying to understand what's there, but trying to understand how we can best apply that and, 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 and make it known in our own life. In verses 12 and 13, Paul discussed the love that the church would have, the honor, the, the esteem they are to have for their leaders. And then when you get to verse 14, he begins to address the relationships primarily with those in the church who aren't thriving spiritually. They're in some kind of difficult season of life, spiritually speaking. And if you notice, one more time, verse 14 begins by saying, and we, that's Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, we urge you, brothers. This is a command not just to the leaders. This is a command to every single member of the church. This is your responsibility as a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Your job is to help others grow in the faith and to restore them in the faith. And that's in line with what we studied in Ephesians chapter four. Remember, Paul gives a picture for the church. He starts out by talking about unity. He discusses spiritual gifts, but he says we're all one, but we're different. And then he focuses primarily, at least initially, on leaders. He says you have leaders, pastors, and teachers. Their job is to teach. Their job is to equip the saints But it's not just a generic equipping. It says you equip them for the work of ministry. The saints is you and I, every member of the church of Jesus Christ. When you came to Christ, you were covered with the holiness of Christ. You were forgiven of sin. You were declared to be holy. And so you are a saint. 
According to the Roman Catholic Church, you're a saint if you have certain miracles in your life and if the church officially dubs you and then you get your own candle and that's what they do. In the Bible, though, we're all saints. We're called holy by God. And as saints, we are receiving the ministry of the pastors and the teachers, but they are ministering so that we also would do the work of ministry. And that work of ministry, Paul describes as building up the body of Christ. We are helping one another grow. We're helping one another mature. And what does that look like? Paul says we're growing into the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. So as you grow, you may look more like your dad or more like your mom. As you grow spiritually, you will look more like Christ. And when that's happening, and when all of us are more like Christ, we're more being used by Christ. And Paul says every part is fit and held together like joints and ligaments. God has put us together in a body. And when every part does its proper job, is fulfilling its proper function, then the church grows and it builds itself up in love. That's Christ's design for the church. You're an active contributor to the health of the church. When a child is healthy, he's going to grow. And if a healthy child gets injured, his body is healthy enough to begin to heal itself. That's what should happen in a healthy church. We're all supposed to be growing into Christ-likeness. And when someone is injured, spiritually speaking, there's healing. The body is working to bring restoration. And what is that healing and what does that restoration look like? Verse 14 gives us three examples. And they're not just examples, they're, they're commands. We, we urge you brothers, here's what you need to do. Number one, admonish the idle. Number two, encourage the faint-hearted. Number three, help the weak. And then maybe as an umbrella over all of this, be patient with them all. The recurring example we've been using the past couple of weeks is imagine if you took a group of, let's say, eight-year-olds on a hike. They're going to climb up a hill. They're going to go see a waterfall. And so you go as a field trip, 20, 30 kids, they're all going with you. And initially, they're all together. You, you meet up, all the vans show up, they get out of the car, you give them the ground rules, and you start the mountain, they're all together. But half an hour later, the group has spread out. You're trying to make sure they're together. They're supposed to be walking up the hill together, but there are some stragglers. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not with the rest of the group, and so they need to be addressed. You have to do something about that. You can't let that continue, but you need to recognize that not everybody who's been separated from the group has been separated for the same reason, and since they have different heart conditions, different heart motivations or root causes to their separation, they need to be responded to in a different way. The first group, we covered this two weeks ago, that's the first phrase there. We urge you brothers, admonish the idle, otherwise known as the disorderly, the unruly, the undisciplined, the disorganized. This is speaking of someone who, yes, they're separated, but the, but the real characteristic of this group is the heart condition of rebellion. I don't want to go on the hike. This is a stupid hike. I don't like hiking. I don't like walking. I don't like my friends. I would rather throw rocks at squirrels and birds and play hide and seek behind the trees. This is a heart of rebellion, a heart of laziness, a heart of resistance to what you've been called to do. That's why it speaks of someone who does not fulfill their responsibilities. So this would be the disobedient kid who wants nothing to do with the rest of the group. What do you do with that person? Paul says you admonish him. 
You admonish, you, you correct, you warn, you reprove. And we talked about when you do this, it should be biblical correction. It should be done in love. It should be done in gentleness. But it should be with scriptures. You admonish for, for sin. The goal is not to shame the person. The goal is to snap them out of their wrong thinking and restore them as a useful member of the body of Christ. That was the first group. Admonish the unruly, the, the idle, the undisciplined. The second commandment here is encourage the faint-hearted. In other words, these are the discouraged. They, they need courage. This would be the child who's separated, not because of rebellion in his heart, but because of fear or worry, anxiety. There's, there's something that has made this child apprehensive about continuing. So in the analogy, this could be a kid who just says, I, I don't want to go. It, it's a dark forest. I don't want to go. I might get bit by an animal. Or maybe a kid who had something happen in the morning at his house, and it's still on his mind, and so he's distracted. He's consumed in his mind with something other than what he's been called to do. What do you do with that kid? You don't admonish this group. It says here, you encourage. Encourage the faint-hearted. Put courage in this person. And again, the best way to do that is with biblical truth. The model, again, is Christ. Christ corrected, he admonished, and Christ encouraged. The goal is to help this person who has taken their eyes off of Christ and, and, and take their mind and their spiritual eyes back to God's power, God's promises, God's provision, so that they would be restored to usefulness and they would be a contributing member of the body of Christ. We want to help this person have their focus in the right place. I have a couple times in my life been water skiing, and it's the cheater way where they tie the skis together. Um, I've never been snow skiing, though, but I have heard that those who snow, obviously, have you ever heard of celebrities, you know, crashing or dying, you know, because they go skiing and they hit a tree? It's very dangerous when you pick up speeds. They tell people when, you, when, you, when you're skiing in the snow, don't stare at the trees. Your eyes should be staring at the white, the snow, and you're saying, that's the road I stay on, and you just kind of let everything go. But the people who are focused on the trees, they can get so nervous, they climb up, and they will crash, and they can really do some damage to their bodies. I think that's a good analogy for the Christian life. The, the discouraged person is so focused on other things. What about this? What about my, my job, my family? What about these things? And they're no longer focusing on what God has called them to do. Our job is to be used by Christ to restore them encourage them. That, that, that encouragement can have an element of correction, but it should always have the tenderness of Christ. That's how you're going to be effective. And that's how you're going to be faithful. Just think about what would happen if you responded to these first two groups in the opposite. So give, give them the response of the other group. If you admonish the faint-hearted, if you tell the kid, oh, you don't be scared, that's, that's, that's just silly, you're, don't, you're just being a baby, they may end up farther in their discouragement and they still don't want to go. On the flip side, if you try to offer encouragement and support to the unruly, undisciplined child, you might be encouraging them in their negligence because rather than be corrected, they have people's pity. They might use your own sympathy to their personal advantage. So those are the first two groups. Our focus today is the last exhortation. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and lastly, help the weak. Again, I'll note the final phrase there is be patient with them all. This is not, hey, do this. This is a silver bullet. You'll fix this person. This takes time. It takes patience. But the last group is described as 
the weak. The opposite of weak, obviously, is strong. And to be strong means to be able. You can do something. To be weak, then, is to be unable. There is something you, you, you normally, a person is expected to be able to do, but you cannot. And the Greek word for sick is even many times translated sick. I'm sorry, the Greek word for weak is many times translated sick. We understand that. When you're sick, you're not functioning properly. Something's wrong with your body. You're sick. You're not able to do everything you normally could do. And so just going back to the analogy, who would be the weak children? Not as a... Uh, you know, what's the insulting term, but what's wrong? This could be the kid who forgot his medication and has asthma. This could be the kid who stepped in a hole early on and twisted his ankle. What do you do with those kids? They don't need to be scolded. They don't need simply to say, you can do it, it's okay. They need help. And that's what Paul says, help the weak. If you're going on a hike and a little kid twists his ankle and he's hobbling along, what are you going to do? You're going to pick him up and you're going to carry him, either back all the way to the top or back down to the car and all the way to the doctor's, wherever he needs to go. That's, that's what it means to help someone. You are carrying them in some form. I mean, the most vivid and literal example of this would be the lame man who wanted to be healed by Christ and his friends did what? They literally carried him, remember? They put him on the roof, they did a hole in the roof and they lowered him so now Jesus can heal him. They did for him what he could not do at all. He was paralyzed. That's help. Helping the weak can involve physical help and it can involve spiritual help. Go, go back a few books with me to Galatians chapter six. We've been referring to this. You should know this passage. It's an important one to know in terms of the life of the church. Galatians chapter six, verses one and two. Paul starts with the same word he uses in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Brothers, everyone, brothers, Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you, who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What type of person is Paul talking about? Verse one says, they're caught in a transgression. That could mean, some people read that and go, oh, I caught you doing it. I caught you. And, and I guess that's a possibility, but I think the better understanding is they're caught not by the person who saw them do it. They're caught by the sin, like, like, a, like a fish is caught in a net. They're trapped. They're, they're overtaken by sin. What do they need? They need help. You who are spiritual, if they're, they're a brother, so they're spiritual, but the point is they have their mind taken away from what is true. You're focused on the truth. You have an outside perspective. You, in, in that position of, of understanding the truth of the spirit, are to restore him like a, like a, like a thumb out of socket. You got to pop it back into place. I need, to, I need to fix this. We need to restore this person because they're caught in sin, At the same time, the end of the verse one says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Tempted to what? Either to continue in the sin, participate in the sin with them, or to exalt yourself over them. Restore them. 
Understanding your own sinfulness, your own weakness, you come to them in a spirit of gentleness. This is one of the challenges of church discipline because you're dealing with someone who's continuing in sin and you're wondering, is this someone who's weak? They, they, they don't have the spiritual ability at this point to overcome this. They need help. They need restoration. Or is this someone who's rebellious? If this is someone who, who just is struggling to get over this, we need to help them. We need to, to guard ourselves, but we need to, verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens. That's not just, these aren't... Um, fortune cookie verses. Take one verse and then read the next one. They're connected. Restore them and bear one another's burdens because these burdens typically are things that lead people to sin. Bear their burdens and so in doing so you will fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is what he mentioned back in chapter 5 verse 14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let's say you find out that someone is cheating on their taxes or stealing money from their work. That's a sin. It's clearly a sin. But behind the sin, there's either a rebellious heart that says, I don't care, I'm just going to steal because I want more money. Or maybe there are something going on in their family, in their home, and then they're going, well, I'm working hard, my boss isn't paying me, I need money. What do you do as a church? Well, you address the sin, but you also, verse 2, you bear one another's burdens. How do you bear someone's burden in that case? You help them. You make sure they have enough. That's what the church does. I remember when I was a young adult, I had a friend who didn't have a license, but he had a car. He drove around all the time. And eventually you find out, you can't, he's a professing Christian. Hey, you can't do this. You can't just drive. That's illegal. You need to go. I think he had a license. It might have been revoked. I don't remember. But you can't do this. And the response might have been, or, you know, I got to get to work. I got to get to school. I got, I got things to do. How, how do you expect me to get to school? What's the answer? We'll figure it out. We'll get you there, Right? That's bearing the burden. I can't just say, hey, you're not allowed to do that. That's not the Christian thing to do, and then walk away. My job is to bear that burden with them so that they're not feeling forced or obligated to do this. So in thinking about the the weaknesses that we have among us and in our own hearts, I want to share just two principles concerning weakness, and I think they're more, um, they're nothing new. They're just reminders more than anything. The first principle is this. Weakness should be a reminder Weakness is a reminder. This world is filled with weakness. We see physical weakness every day. And the physical weaknesses that we experience in our own lives, in our own bodies, or in others, should be a reminder to us of spiritual weakness. Why is there weakness? Why is there disability? Why is there sickness? Why are there diseases? Why does our body hurt? Because this world's been cursed because of sin. When you see physical uh, weakness, it's a reminder that this whole world is under a curse because of spiritual weakness. We're called to depend on God, and he is our helper. Jesus told his disciples, they're supposed to be praying, they fall asleep, and Jesus said to them, the spirit is, is willing, but the flesh is weak. He needed them to understand that so they would continually rely on him. There are many biblical passages that command us to be strong. Be strong in the Lord. But that doesn't mean there aren't going to be people around us who have times of weakness. And that doesn't mean we're not going to experience seasons of weakness. There's a difference between spiritual strength and physical strength. You can be strong in the Lord, but still be in a place where you need help. But being strong in the Lord, paradoxically, means you're continually relying on him. 
Paul said, I know nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. He embraced his weaknesses. He said, I I, I would rather be weak because then the power of Christ is on display. The opposite of understanding your weakness is ignoring or downplaying your weakness, and that is pride. Go back a couple more books with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Corinthian church was an arrogant church. It was a prideful church. They, 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 they would argue over their own spiritual gifts and who contributes the most and who's the better teacher and whose group do you belong to? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll just jump around a little bit. Verse 18, Paul says to them, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's a difference. The world rejects what they hear. We received it. Why? Verse 26. Paul says to them, for consider your calling, brothers. Think about who you are. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That's not a very encouraging message to a church. You're not all that smart. You're not all that important in the world. Why does he say that? Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not He chose that to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, verse 29, so that no human flesh might boast in the presence of God. That's what Paul's after. Dependency. A reminder of our own weaknesses. And then verse 30 says, and because of him, because of Christ, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There are no self-made Christians. There are no self-saved Christians. Your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption is not because of you, it's because of Christ. And Paul repeats that over and over. The theological term is monergism. It's, it's one-sided. You were dead in sin. You were drowning. You would have died. You contributed, theologians have said this or pastors have said this, you contributed nothing to your salvation other than the sin from which you needed to be saved. So he says that. Started back in verse 26. You were nothing. Verse 27, but God chose. He repeats it. God chose. Verse 28, God chose. Verse 30, it's because of him We were unable, we were unwilling to come to God. But he saved us. And we are dependent on God, not just in salvation or justification, but we're dependent on God in sanctification. If you want to grow spiritually, you don't do that yourself either. You need the help of the Spirit. You need the empowering of Jesus Christ. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing Hebrews 4 reminds us Jesus is our faithful high priest. He sympathizes with our, what? Weaknesses. 
He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Verse 16 of Hebrews 4 says, he, he says, you go to him, go to the throne of grace, and you'll find mercy. You'll receive grace to help you in the hour of need. When you see weakness in whatever form in the church or in the world, you don't go, oh, I'm glad I'm not there. You need to remember, we're all weak, and we all need to rely on God. Secondly, weakness, not only is it a reminder, weakness is an opportunity. Weakness is an opportunity. In the eyes of the world, weakness means inferiority. This is no good. My phone doesn't work. My computer's not working. My couch, I don't like it. Get a new one and throw it away. It's not worth the effort. It's, it frustrates me. It's aggravating. Just get rid of it. If, I, if I'm in charge of a big corporation, you're not doing your job, I don't care. I'll find someone else who will do the job. You're weak. And can you imagine if that was the attitude of the church? I don't like the way you do ministry. You know what? We, get, just, we'll find a new member. We'll replace you. We treat people like devices that don't work. Just throw it away. Get a new one. No, for the Christian, seeing weakness is to see an opportunity to minister, to serve, to help. To see weakness is to see an opportunity to reflect the heart of Christ who came to help the weak. The weak are not the people we're supposed to insult. Weak are not the people we're supposed to just be aggravated with because we have to help them. The weak are an opportunity to show the love of Christ. This has been the characteristic of the church since the beginning. Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. It's the last time he's going to see them. He warns them about true doctrine. He warns them, watch out for yourselves. Wolves will come up from, from among you. But then he says, you as elders, you as leaders of the church need to be ready to help the weak. And he supports that by quoting Jesus. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We live in a culture that says, no, I just like to receive. I just want to sit back and you do what I need you to do. He says, that's not the way Christ operates. We serve. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 speaks of weaker brothers. They have a, a weaker conscience or something that to the letter of the law is not a sin, but it, but it bothers them. And you could say, man, you just need to get your doctrine right and just do it. Stop being a spiritual baby. That's not the heart of Christ. Paul says, this is a brother for whom Christ died. You are to serve them. You are to honor them. You are to make sure you're not a stumbling block to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, speaking of the, the, the spiritual body, you're all together. And Paul says, you all matter. When, when one member suffers, you suffer with it. When one member is exalted, we exalt him. We exalt together. And he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 22, the parts of the body that seem to be weak are indispensable. That's the mindset we need to have. Peter uses the same word in speaking of marriage. Husbands, he says, love your wives. Live with them in an understanding way as weaker vessels. And the idea there is not to disparage a woman. It is to understand that the husband needs to recognize he's dealing with something fragile, something that's precious, and he's to honor her. Man, we have to recognize there is a difference between a disrespectful wife who refuses to do what her responsibilities are and a wife who's tired and overwhelmed and burdened and needs help. Those are two different categories. 
Where there is legitimate weakness, we can't ignore and we shouldn't be criticizing. We should be helping. What do you need? How can I help? I'm grateful to God because our church over the years has had so many ministries and formally and informally that have helped people. Those of you who've been on the receiving end, you're, you're grateful as well. In studying this idea of, of help, I'm just looking at passages and trying to think, okay, what are some examples, though? Let's, let's move as a church into, and let's stimulate one another to love and good deeds. What does this look like? How do I help the weak? Biblically, what does it look like? Practically, what can it look like? Well, the biggest example physically in the Bible is food and finances. That just was one of the common hearts of the church from the beginning, and even in Old Testament Israel. Food and finances, it's a big need for the, for the weak. A lot of you probably know the story of Elijah. Went up to Mount Carmel. He was going to go get up against the prophets of Baal. They both built an altar. They both put meat, and they were calling. The prophets of Baal were calling. They're cutting themselves. They're trying to get Baal's attention so that he will send fire from heaven. Never happens. Elijah puts water all over his. He prays a brief prayer. Fire comes. He wins. And he walks away, and you think, oh, what a victorious victory. But he goes away, and Queen Jezebel says, find him. He's dead. And Elijah runs for his life, it says in 1 Kings 19. He ran for his life, and he ends up in a dark cave all by himself, and he just says, let me die. He's suicidal. He's weak. And God sends an angel to minister to him, and you know what the first thing the angel tells him is? He, there's a little introduction, but he says, arise and eat. You haven't eaten, Elijah. He was, he was running for his life. He hasn't had time. This is not a, we live in a culture where we, food's readily available. There, you ate. If you didn't eat, you, you didn't eat until you can get to a home. There's no refrigeration. So he gets up and he eats. And then the angel says to him, after that, Elijah, arise and eat. One more time, eat again. You need strength. Sometimes a person who's weak simply needs a good meal. You know, when, you have, when your kid is, is whiny, there's sin there in his heart, but he also, you might need to feed him. I remember hearing a, a pastor say that. He says, you know, when your kid is, does he need a spanking or does he need a nap? They say, Maybe it's a little bit of both. There's a weakness there as well. Jesus fed the multitudes. They were They were poor. And he says, you could send them away. I don't want them to to faint as they go look for food. Will you give them something to eat? And one of the characteristics of the early church was that they took care of their own, particularly the weak ones among them, and that would be the widows. The first major problem the church had to address was taking care of the widows. It says there was a daily distribution. That could be money, it could be food, it doesn't say, but there's something to provide for them. 1 Timothy 5 actually gives qualifications. Here are the widows you should support. There are true widows who have no children, no family. There's no one to support them. Then there are widows who can get help another way. Don't burden the church. But the true widows, serve them. Provide for them. That's what James says. Pure religion is caring for the widows. It's caring for the orphans. Those are the weak. Those who cannot provide for themselves. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul describes his... his, um, conversion and then he speaks of the he was given a revelation from Christ he's going to be a minister he ends up meeting with the apostles and their job is to make sure he's preaching the right message and said yeah okay you go preach to the Gentiles we'll preach to the Jews they gave him the right hand of fellowship and then Paul says but they told me make sure I was remembering the poor and Paul says that was the very thing I was eager to do 
That's the heart of Christ, to help the weak, to provide for those who cannot provide for themselves. If they don't want to provide for themselves, that's different. That's for 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, don't give them anything to eat. They don't want to work. But the weak person who can't work, so an orphan who has no parents, they can't work, a widow who has no children to provide for them, give to them, serve. Those are the main uh, encouragements you see in the, in the scriptures, food and finances. The, the early church, they, a lot of people traveled from all over the Roman Empire. They end up in Jerusalem. They love Christ. They want to stay there after Pentecost. And now they don't have food. And what are they doing? They're selling their property to provide for one another. They're meeting needs. They're helping the weak. And the apostles, by the Spirit of God in that apostolic age, are, are healing people. But there is also spiritual help. And this is where you have to think about what it looks like in each person's life. What kind of help does this person need? Maybe they don't need money. Maybe they don't need food in the moment. But they need help. They're they're spiritually weak. There's something that we might be expecting them to do that they can't do on their own. Even Jesus was tempted 40 days in the wilderness. And when it was over, it said the angels came and ministered to him. What does that mean? I don't know. They might have brought him food because he didn't eat. It could have been food, but it could also be company, spiritual encouragement, strengthening him in some way. Even Christ in his humanity faced the weakness of the body. And we have to understand that we also will face weaknesses of the soul. And we got to be ready and we got to be patient with people who are there. If you go visit someone's house and they've got a two-year-old and they're eating their peanut butter and jelly sandwich and it's all over their face and it's all over the floor and they have these little scooper things which I think are disgusting but it catches all the crumbs and there's a mess everywhere. Do you scold the toddler? No. Hopefully not. They need time. They need instruction. They need practice. But if Ryan was eating his peanut butter and jelly sandwich and he did the same thing, you'd be going, something's wrong here, right? Something's wrong here. Well, that happens spiritually. We see someone and think, oh, you're supposed to be a Christian. You're a Christian. You should know how to do that. And maybe they don't. There are people who have to, we all in different areas of life, have to train our mind, train our thoughts, train our habits, our patterns. Coming to Christ out of the world looks different. And when a little kid starts learning how to walk, you don't just say, all right, go. You, you, you hold his hands and he takes baby steps and he has to learn to walk. We all need help in some way. We're learning to walk with the Lord. And we need to be ready because training someone, walking with someone, helping someone grow like that, it's very inefficient. Having kids makes it very difficult to clean the house and to go to the store and to do anything else really you want to do. Training someone else is the same way. You're, you're, you're raising someone. When I was at the restaurant, one of the things I had to do was train new servers. And they had a five-day training course. Day one, I do it, you watch. Day two, I do it, you help. Day three, we do it together. Day four, you do it, I help you. Day five, you do it, I watch. So you're slowly giving them more responsibility. But if you're the owner, you're thinking, oh, that is very inefficient. I'm paying two people to the work of one person. Why do you do it? Because in the end, you now have two people who can do the work. 
Well, that train, that's in a, when, when you're training, man, you're trying to do, go fast and do that. Someone's in the way right there asking questions. You, you have to do it more slowly. But that's how spiritual training works. That's the spiritual help you need to walk with them. If someone comes to you and says, I got problems in my life, I got problems with work, and you realize it's not just the money issue, it's an issue of the heart. They don't have self-control or, or they can't control their anger or something else. You go, how do I fix this? How do I help you? That's going to take time. If, let's say they're in a financial crisis. Are, are they at fault for what's happening? Maybe. Maybe not. But if there's a weakness there, the best response is not going to be to scold them. It's going to give them tangible help. Some people have never been taught. The best response, Romans 12 says, is to weep with those who weep. Not berate them because they're crying. So what kind of practical helps have we seen in our own church? We've seen it when families start providing food. All of my kids, we got food from you guys. Uh, multiple families here did that. Right now, we got the Medina family getting food. That's, that's part of the church helping the weak. Someone's sick, someone's injured, they need help. That is an expression of our membership covenant. You, you come into, to, tonight we'll have a members meeting. It's always a reminder of what it means to be a member. I'm committed to mutual care. We take care of each other. The church is a place where those who belong to the church get help. And those who don't belong to the church get, get help as well. They're, they're love. That's, a, that's an opportunity. The help can be physical. The help could be skills. The help could be even administrative. In, in uh, Exodus chapter 18, his father-in-law, uh, Jethro or Raul, he, he sees Moses. And Moses says he's up from morning to evening with a long line of people waiting to tell him their case. And when they tell him their case, he explains the law of God and he makes a judgment. And Jethro comes in and says, Moses, what are you doing? You're going to wear yourself out. You need help. You need to get some men who know the law. Let them divvy up the work. And if there's a big important case, they'll bring it to you. Well, that's help. That's, you know, you might see a young mom, you might see a husband, you might see a single mom, you might see a, a child, you're going, oh man, you're so overwhelmed. You need help. Don't scold them, help them. Many times a, a weak person doesn't even know how to ask for help or how to help themselves. You got children who are being bullied at school. They don't know what to do. The cause, God is a God who defends the rights of the poor, of the weak. And so we can advocate for them. We can help them. We can give them the skills that they need. The hardest part is many times a weak person doesn't have the gumption to tell you they need help. And so you need to be proactive. You need to step into their life. If you sit back and say, hey, anytime you need help, just let me know, they may never call you. But if you ask them then and there, hey, can we meet? Can we talk? You step into their life, they you might say, oh, thank you so much. I remember once as young adults, there was one young lady who didn't have a car and she was very quiet. And we would say, you need a ride, you need a ride. Anytime you need a ride, just let us know. And everyone just nods. Anytime, because some of the college age kids drove, some of them did not. Anytime you need a ride, just let us know. And everyone just kind of nods. And we finished, I think it was here at church, we finished an event and then they, people start leaving. Like those who have a car, they get in their car and they drive off. And one by one, they're leaving and I'm watching, okay, people are leaving. I'm waiting till the last person leaves. And this young lady hasn't left yet. And she's just kind of standing there. And then I realized I wasn't sure if she was going to get picked up. And I said, is your dad coming for you? She goes, no. Is your mom coming for you? No. 
do you have a ride home? No. <laughs> You're supposed to tell us this, you know? But, but no, and luckily there was a sister that said, hey, you mind taking her home? Well, no problem. They, they, you have to, if someone's truly weak, sometimes they don't tell you this. You have to step into their life. And you don't do it out of controlling them. You do it to help. In the way that we admonish one another, in the way that we encourage one another, in the way that we help one another, we're doing it because we have been served first by Christ. We're reflecting the heart of Jesus Christ. And so let me close with one final verse. Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five. Paul is, in the end of the letter, gonna move to some practical expressions of the Christian faith, but the first big chunk of this book is doctrine. But here's what he wants us to know. Romans chapter five, verse six. You might know this, even if you don't know this is where it is in the Bible. Romans 5, 6, Paul says, for while we were still weak, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the heart of God. Rather than say, you don't deserve my help, this is your own fault. While we were weak at the right time, Christ died for us. So let's model the heart of Christ and let's help the weak among us for the glory of God and for the strength of our church. Father, we want as a church to represent the heart of Christ. Your design is that the world would see our love and know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Help us to be sensitive to the criticism in our own heart, the laziness in our own heart that doesn't help the weak, that wants to blame them, that wants to scold them, that wants to elevate ourselves thinking we would never let ourselves get in that position. Give us the heart of Christ to help the weak, to minister, to serve. We pray for those who, who feel weak now or ha- are weak in, in whether a physical issue, a spiritual issue. Give them the grace to seek help and give those who hear the resolve and the love to give help so that we would be united as a church, that Christ would be glorified as the giver of all good gifts. And so that as a result of our ministry and our unity, we would together fulfill the purpose Christ has given us in proclaiming his truth. We ask for his glory. Amen.